Hello there you and you obviously too and welcome to the Culture File Weekly with me Luke Clancy and our week's haul of stories about culture. This time we'll be talking about the weather and its presence in human culture. Maurice Gohan will be exploring the good and bad advice of Fran Leibovitz and Rob Long will pour his latest martini shot. But we begin with a bit of clowning Making contact with and even playing about with strangers in public has long been a part of the art of the clown, but it's yet another flake of culture brushed away by the pandemic. Simon Thompson is a clown whose long training involved stints with the Parisian masters at the schools of Lecoq and Gaulier, but in the pandemic, no amount of deep craft gets over the health advice. So Thompson's latest project has been to take his clown persona, Clown Noir, online as part of the Irish Chamber Orchestra's I Create Online web series. He spoke to Culture File from his Limerick base about the life of a lockdown clown. <laughs> a clown doesn't have to wear makeup, a nose or big shoes. When you look at a clown, he should mirror society and he should amplify all our misgivings and all our faults so that we can see them in ourselves and laugh at our <laughs> potential ridiculousness. So originally I'm from Manchester, so I was brought up very close to Bellevue Circus in, uh, in Manchester. My grandfather worked at the showgrounds there. Every Christmas we'd be taken to see the, the Christmas circus show. It was just a, a passion from that early age, and eventually I started to work summer jobs there and... Um, I, it was the first circus I performed in. At the age of 19, I went to France to try and develop uh, my skills as a clown and, and learn more than just doing, I suppose, traditional circus. I wanted to do slightly longer shows. I didn't want to be doing the repeats of the same gag day in and day out. So I went to the International Theatre School, uh, Jacques Lecoq, before heading off and working in all kinds of Street theatre, Commedia dell'arte. There's a very particular scene in Paris between Lecoq and Gaulier of, of people who sort of take that kind of clowning, comedy acting really seriously and, and, and look at its roots and think of it, see it as a very specific art form. Whether you look at what would be often termed as sacred clowning, sort of the, the basis of the people like the Hopi tribes, um, where clowning is part of their rituals and their sacred beliefs. These are people who are suited and are almost chosen for that role in, in life. So they are the clown. Gollier takes that a little further, that inside of us all, there is a playful nature. His whole pedagogy is built around play, and the ability that to, a clown should be able to find play in anything. But it should relate to yourself, otherwise you're just acting. From when I was a young performer, it was much more physical. The gestures were larger, the movements were larger, the pace was faster. I would push the body a lot further. So as time progresses, I think I've evolved. And what exists now is maybe a couple of sides of my own personality. There's a softer clown, which is very vulnerable and quite melancholy. And then there's the clown noir personality, which is almost a late-night cabaret clown who's 
seen the darker sides of life, the darker elements of society, should the audience be laughing at this stuff? So, yeah, I, I play with that. I think my clown has just evolved, and I think it always will as my body changes, as my mindset changes, as I learn more about being a human on this planet. The difference between a clown and society is often we hold on to certain emotions and they stay with us for a time. Whereas a, a clown, it's very ephemeral. He might feel sad for that split second, but then he moves on and there's something else. So it is a, a point in time. And I think that's how a clown can reference sadness or loneliness one by amplifying it so it becomes not as real and it, it creates a slight smile or it becomes softer they, it's not such a bitter pill to swallow and and then by bringing in a lightness and a joy that's the relief that's the catalyst that that um hopefully takes people out of, of the, um, the sadness, the melancholy, the, the despair, is that that little moment of laughter is just, yeah, um, the relief. I would have traditionally done a huge amount of festival work and, and outdoor work because I find that engagement with the audience when they're very unpredictable, when an audience isn't in a space because they've bought a ticket and they're sat in formal rows, they behave differently. So for me to polish and hone my, my skills with audience engagement, I always really enjoyed outdoor and unpredictable work. But obviously that's now changed with where we are in the current situation. Well, the unpredictability has gone up a bit, maybe. <laughs> yes, there's a, there's a few sort of... <laughs> when we do get rolling again, an ability to work outdoors uh, could, be, could be quite a boon. Yeah, I think so. I think even the ability to... When it's safe, I mean, I worked just before Christmas in, in Waterford for spree when the, when the shops briefly opened and we did some safe um, street performances in Waterford. And you could see on the shoppers passing by the uncertainty and the, and the oh, do I, you know, is this OK? But it added so many new dynamics because you could see the people in the distance who were smiling and just, you know, there's an element of normality returning and an element of joy. There's a huge scope for art forms that move into the outdoor space or, or into different performance spaces, so not what we'd associate as traditional proscenium arch or theatre-style venues or auditoriums. The, the art forms like Clown and various other can present and become a hugely important tool to bring back social conventions. 
For the moment, the the new area you're taking Clown into is 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 online. That project with the ICO. They're making a number of films for web access, which partially is about working with artists in in Ireland and and bringing them together with the orchestra. So the I Create series, I think initially it's a collaboration between different disciplines. I was approached with the idea that they wanted to do uh, a mime piece to a piece of classical music. One thing that's come to me is this, is always things are changing, dramatically changing in in Limerick, and I don't often get into the city these days, and and on the odd time I do, I can see the changes in such a short period of time, in the last 12 months. It feels like we've lost a lot of things. You know, we've lost touch, hugs. In the narrative, I was playing with the idea of things that we've lost, we've lost, we've forgotten. Elements of, you know, is it sadness or is it just, yeah, a weariness? But despite all that, um, I still wanted to show hope and, and, and sort of highlight that hope is always on the cards. Simon Thompson there and his ICO collaboration, Still Hope, goes live February 25th. Details at irishchamberorchestra.com. Next, here to welcome the spring is Maurice Gohan, who's been considering a little emotional spring cleaning of her own, with Fran Leibovitz as her spirit guide. It doesn't go well. Lots of bad choices. Lots of them. Statistically, most people have already given up their New Year's resolutions. But who is setting resolutions this year? What psychopath looked at the dump truck that was 2020 and said, yeah, I'm going to start doing couch to 5k this year? If 2020 taught us anything, it was that nothing matters. And call me a glass half full kind of girl, but I believe it's only downhill from here. I am sure by January 2022, we'll look back at 2020 and think, God, we actually had it so good. By 2022, the US will probably no longer exist. And Jeff Bezos will have a dictatorship of the entire world and his cabinet of ministers will be TikTok stars. Instead of some dystopian tale, Mad Max will be a Disney film we watch to escape from the horrible reality we're living in. I've seen some people do Dry January this year, and I thought to myself, God love you. Rome is burning, but you've decided to give up pizza? It reminds me of Pompeii. When that volcano exploded and everybody just went about their normal life as they saw lava literally pour down into their city. And then they were frozen in place. People on the edge of their own extinction 
refusing to believe it's happening. How familiar. To distract myself from our impending doom, I've been watching a lot of TV. So one great show this month, really incredible, it's on Netflix called Pretend It's a City. Martin Scorsese interviews this powerhouse of a woman, Fran Lebowitz. She's 70 and she gives out about absolutely everything. If you ask me, was New York better in the 70s? I would say absolutely, because it was less boring. I don't know. Everyone seems to have a very high boredom threshold, okay? Also, you could smoke, which is one of the reasons it was less boring. Because if you're a smoker, when you're smoking, no matter how boring it is, at least you're smoking. But she's so strong in her opinions, you end up siding with her on everything. And here's the thing with old people. You can't really argue with them. Because even if they're wrong, they're more convinced in their wrongness. Because they've had way more time to practice the argument. A genius 20-year-old is not smarter than a below-average 70-year-old. I really believe that. But Fran is a genius 70-year-old. And on the topic of wellness, she's not a fan of it. She says, bad habits will kill you, but good habits will not save you. For example, smoking might kill you. But doing yoga every morning at 6am won't save you from a car crash. Drinking every day might give you liver disease. But not drinking every day won't stop you dying from a heart attack. You get the gist. Since I heard her words, I've changed up my life. Gone is exercise or eating vegetables. I've stopped showering every day. Now I just wake up, smoke a pack of cigarettes and stew in my own filth. Good habits won't save you, I tell myself as I order McDonald's for the 10th day in a row. I could be starving to death. I wouldn't leave my apartment at 3 o'clock in the morning in a snowstorm for anything but cigarettes. Still, despite Fran's words of wisdom, I have one habit I've been trying to give up my entire life. And I can't let it go. And I told my mum I'll give it up at 18. And that passed and I hadn't. And then I said 21. And that passed and I hadn't. So then I said 30. And I'm 30 in two months. I feel the countdown approaching me. It's now or never. Because my name is Maurice and I am a thumb sucker. I suck my thumb. Every single night when I'm going to sleep, I stick it in my gob. And a lot of times I'll do it during the day too. I've been in business meetings and slyly taken a few sucks just to keep me going. I started sucking my thumb when I was three because my mum took me off soothers too soon. So it's all her fault. But now I'm approaching 30 and I can't be someone with wrinkles who also sucks her thumb. It's too mortifying. But there's no blueprint for my embarrassing habit. There's no AA for thumb sucking. Bad habits will kill you. And good habits will not save you, so says Fran. But what about embarrassing habits? She didn't account for them. Maybe bad habits will kill you and good habits won't save you, but embarrassing habits will keep you up at night. Or maybe they help you get to sleep. I'm not sure the answer on this one. But I do know 
how hard it is when you're addicted to something that is literally attached to your body. It takes a superhuman strength to ignore something at the end of your hand. I'm not sure even Batman could do that. And if Gotham is going to burn, maybe I'll want the comfort of my thumb in my mouth as I watch the city disappear. You know what? Now that I've mulled it over, I think I'm just going to give up when I'm 40. Maurice Gotham there, not rushing things. And next on the Culture File Weekly, we're going to talk about the weather with some of those who take such conversations very seriously. A new book, Weather, Spaces, Mobilities and Effects, considers our everyday relationship with the atmospheres that surround us, the light, the wind and the rain, and of course the fog that has caught the attention of not just landscape painters, but contemporary artists from Japan to Iceland. Culture File's Rachel Andrews spoke to two of the book's co-editors, Kaya Barry and Maya Barovnik. The way that we represent weather and the way that um, we think about, that we talk about, the language we use, it can often be quite sort of bland and, and, and I guess everyday. But what interests us is the way that artists and writers and performers and other kinds of creative practitioners are able to capture these really really quite intense moments that people have out there in the world in the landscape My name is Kaya Barry. I'm a researcher at Griffith University in Brisbane, Australia, and I'm a geographer and an artist. I think if you want to know about the weather and how the weather moves us and how it affects us, contemporary like visual arts and performance arts does this really well. You know, it, it requires you to be present and think about your body in relation to the other bodies in the room and the other kinds of sensations and and movements and, and the way that you interact with with everything else that's going on. So artworks where you fill a room with foggy substance, that's really technically astounding, some of these. They really draw out, you know, attention to not just the environment, but to yourself and how you respond. My name is Maria Borovnik. I am a lecturer here at Massey University in Palmerston North in New Zealand. I think the fog idea came from the tactileness of fog, right? You know, like, I mean, like, originally, I think we, we both came from different different experiences of fog. But what we found really interesting was that fog seems to be almost like a being, you know, like something that envelops us. We We kind of, we feel it, we are with it. And at the same time, it also sort of seems to be coming in and disappearing really quickly. And it just creates this sort of immobility. And in the literature, the immobility has been picked up on. But also, it's like beautiful and fascinating and really um, its own little creator, right? Like it's like with art, with the artwork that is especially the artwork that Kaya had been looking at or the installations that she's been working with, you know, like fog kind of has been displayed as something that can come together and 
and is its own being. And, and that's what was so fascinating to us. And we looked at like this non-human thing, you know, this non-human being, you know, this, this fog that would communicate with us, but also be with us and then leave us and show us things and feels in a, in a particular way, you know, it's really tactile. So, so in that sense, fog uh, was really fascinating. There was a few artists that we were thinking through fog. So one of them was the Japanese artist Fujiko Nikaya, who has been working on these experimental fog installations and site-specific artworks for decades. And she has a very famous one uh, that was exhibited um, in Canberra in Australia, um, where she's created this garden um, around a pond and has set up with a, with uh, the help of engineers and some scientists this this fog that a mist that comes out on a timed uh, display. So as you walk through the garden, uh, all of a sudden this foggy cloud kind of envelops you and you can't quite see the path of where you're walking to. There's other artists who've done work quite similar over the years. So. Um, the, you know, the very famous uh, Danish Icelandic artist Elofra Eliasson, he um, has done a lot on weather, but particularly the really big, immersive, foggy landscape. So he had an installation um, in the Tate Modern um, a few years back where there was this giant artificial sun orb in the, the ceiling and down below, everyone could come into the turbine hall and it was just filled with this foggy mist. So it really distorted your sense of place, um, even your balance, your relationship and distance to the other people in the room. So all of these artworks that we talk about, um, they all do this in very different ways, but with a really nice attention to the detail of the texture of fog and how it moves and shifts and it it wraps you in and then it spits you back out on the other side. So this sort of disorienting movement was really interesting to us. There's been a lot of attention, you know, in the media um, around noticing nature and noticing the changes that happen, the, the slower sense of seasons as we all have been, you know, locked inside our houses waiting for something to change. But the world's changing around us. And so you see people really noticing the weather. You see a rise of people who are interested in wildlife of all kinds and seeing the seasonal variances perhaps anew or differently. In that sense, I think the pandemic has kind of magnified things that perhaps we took for granted that were right in front of us. Um, weather certainly accentuates how we're all feeling too. So if it's cold and windy and you have your one hour exercise a day, do you really want to go and step outside? So it changes our habits. It changes what we're willing to put up with um, when we have a limited kind of radius of where our movements are permitted and when they're permitted um, and like right now here in Australia on the other side of the continent to where I am 
people are being evacuated from bushfires, but they're going into evacuation centres where everyone has to be distanced. So it has immensely changed how we think about, you know, how safe and secure and, and um, comfortable we live our lives and the places we live. Kaya Barry there ending that report, and you heard also from Maria Borovnik. The reporter was Rachel Andrews. Weather, Spaces, Mobilities and Effects, edited by Kaya Barry, Tim Edensor and Maria Borovnik, is out now. And bringing up the rear in the trad fashion, as often happens at this moment in proceedings, we have Rob Long, thinking about the many ways in which living your life can tell you a great deal about making a television programme, and, would you believe it, vice versa. This is Rob Long with Martini Shot. I have a friend who, when you're at the movies or watching TV, and something funny happens on screen, he laughs and then he looks at you to see if you're laughing, which is... One of those things that when you notice it, you just can't unnotice it. I also have a friend, and I think we've all got one of these, who kind of taps you on the arm when he talks. A version of saying, hey, hey, listen to me, even if it's obvious that you are listening to him. You know, like, uh, so I was trying to use miles to get an upgrade and tap, tap. I didn't have enough miles, so tap, tap. I went up to the lady at the gate and I tap, tap. Asked her if there was any room in business and she said, tap, tap, that there wasn't. Again, it's one of those things that when you don't notice it, you're fine with it. But the moment you start to notice it, all you can do is count up the taps and then eventually lash out suddenly and inappropriately at your now baffled friend. Now, the tapper and the laugh checker are a form of personal audience management, and it's really no different in a micro sense from doing audience research, which everyone in Hollywood does on every project. I spend a lot of time when I'm shooting a television show watching the audience, which if they noticed it, I'm sure would irritate them. And every film storyteller in the world uses whatever he or she can from the bag of tricks, explosions, music underscore, camera angles, random nudity, to tap the audience on the arm and say, you with me? You following this? Are you awake? People spend a lot of time and a lot of money learning about and stressing over story structure when they write. Go to any bookstore in any big city and check out the screenwriting section, and it's a shelf full of books promising to teach you the foolproof structure for a hit movie or television show. It's all inciting incidents and rising action and plot point pivots and act two reversals, and it's tempting to think that this really is the solution, that this really is the simple formula to success. Figure out a story that hits all of these basic plot structure moments and your work is basically done. And I don't know, maybe that's true. We're all different. Sometimes at the movies, my friend laughs and looks at me and I am not laughing. Sometimes, no matter how often I get tapped on the arm, I have zoned out while my friend is telling me the compelling story of his almost upgrade. What I can offer, and here's a bargain, because I'm offering it for free, you don't have to buy a book or take my seminar, is that the only rule I really know, the only absolutely ironclad law you must follow when writing a movie or a television show or telling a story to your friend about your frequent flyer miles is simply this. Don't be boring. When I stare up at the audience during a television show taping, what I tell myself I'm doing is paying attention to the laughs, but what I'm really doing is desperately trying to reassure myself that everyone up there is listening and engaged. 
I can use whatever trick I know to delude myself that I can manage the audience, but I can't. I can only bore them or keep them interested. Which is just one more way that what we worry about in show business with our audience and what we worry about in real life with our loved ones are exactly the same things. And that's it for this week. For Martini Shot, this is Rob Long. Rob rounding up the stray thoughts there and bringing to a close this edition of the Culture File Weekly. We'll be back with more furtive glances from the wings next Saturday at 6.30pm in the Culture File Weekly and, of course, all week long at 6.10pm in the Daily Culture File here on RTE Lyric FM. Till then, bye now.